0: Well, welcome to Diverse Talk About Games. I'm your co-host Mango, and I am your co-host Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about a little bit about everything all at once. But before, not not the movie. I thought that was going to be clever, but then I realized that that makes sound like we're talking about the movie. <laughs> we're not we're talking about a little bit of grab bag of everything. Before we do that, but wanna show the folks at home. What it is we do on this podcast?
1: Well, on this podcast we talk about games, but we're also going to talk about movies, but we're also probably going to talk about just everything. Uh, we we searched for a topic. And came up short, but we came up short by like six smaller topics. We're like, oh, I, I could talk about this, but it's not enough for a whole episode. And then eventually we realized maybe we should just do a grab bag episode, talking about a little bit of everything.
0: Yep. Yeah. So, uh, buddy, you want to you want to lead us off? You've got a thought, or do you want me to start? It? God. Okay, what do I want to do? All right, this one
1: is dumb and no one is going to agree with me and also I'm wrong maybe, but also I feel it in my bones. So, here we go. Uh so the Hearthstone uh meta has been pretty has been pretty active. I actually have two Hearthstone things I want to talk about. Maybe the first one I'll do isn't the meta stuff, and it is just Quest Hunter. Okay, I've talked about Quest Hunter in the past, right? Like on the on the podcast. Do you remember this? Uh, vaguely. Okay, so when I got to Legend two months ago, I got to Legend off of
0: games like Quest Hunter. Is that right? Well, so,
1: so the, the last month, yes, I did it in just a couple of games in Quest Hunter. And then the time before that, my real, like, hard climb to legend happened with Quest Hunter, which had that legendary run of, like, 29 wins in a row. And it was because I had this insane read on the meta where I realized that, I like, I, it was just one of those things where I saw Quest Hunter on... Twitter, like, it wasn't, I didn't even play against it, right? But I saw what some pro, some Hearthstone pro say, Quest Hunter seems pretty good with Renethal, which was a new card at the time. Renethal raises your max health to 40, but it also adds 10 more cards to your deck. Which is normally bad, right? Um, People think, oh, adding cards to the deck, that's not a big deal. But the thing is, is that, definitionally speaking, you are adding nine worse cards to your deck, right? Like, if you think about any any Hearthstone deck as a collection of the 30 best cards, right? And you maybe have other cards that you wish you could include, but you think that these cards are worse than the cards that make it into your deck, right? Well, what Renethal does is it says, okay, add more bad cards to your deck and make your entire deck less consistent, right? You are going to draw your best cards less, and you are going to draw your worst cards more because of how this all, you know, like how this all works out. If you think about it from that direction, right? Um, but quest hunter has a really interesting interaction with that because the way that quest hunter works is it says you need to deal damage with spells a certain number of times, right? So you deal damage with spells and then your hero power can target minions. Then you deal more, then you do do that two more times. Now your hero power costs zero mana. Then you do that two more times, and now you get a you get a quest reward. You play the quest reward, it's a five mana seven seven, and he says, for the rest of the game, every time you cast a spell, refresh your hero power, right? So your game plan really is to just shoot things with your quest hunter, deal damage, deal two damage, deal one damage, you know, deal three damage spells, right? Until you get to that reward. And then face is the place. You just shoot the opponent's face and you keep throwing two-mana spell, or you keep throwing hero powers at their face, and eventually, you know, like, over the course of a turn or two, you'll probably burn them out of the game, right? So, it's kind of a burn deck, but it's it's a burn deck that has this, like, activating condition that, like, kicks it into high gear, right? Because every spell in the game basically says deal two damage on top of, you know, whatever else you're doing, right? Um, Quest Hunter, everybody hates Quest Hunter. There's There's this perception among the community that Quest Hunter is a bad shitty deck, and I have a lot of friends who think th- this way, and I have unsuccessfully tried ba- to sway them. Ba- I bad, to as pl- in,
0: bad as in in like not performing, or bad is in like unfun to play against.
1: Unfun to play against, and a like 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 a fundamentally poor archetype for a Hearthstone deck to be made out of. Right, and which which has a predicate that I guess I could, I, I want to break down really quickly. There are good Hearthstone decks and bad Hearthstone decks obviously, but some Hearthstone de- and like and like there are fun decks to play against and fun decks to play as, right? Um one of the things is that I find piloting Quest Hunter incredibly fun because I think that there are a lot of really interesting high skill moments where a player who is smart and has a good read on an opponent can completely ruin their day and that's really fun and interesting. Um but um uh there's also just, like, a kind of overarching question of, like, is this a good deck or a bad deck, right? Like, is this a a well-construction, well-designed deck, or is this a poorly designed deck, right? Like, you know, so examples in the past might be something like the old version of Quest Priest that had no win condition, but just had a ton of removal and was literally built to fatigue opponents, like people will say that is a bad deck. That's like a because, classic
0: Dave deck. Like, yeah,
1: exactly. Right. And it's like that that deck does not deserve to exist. And this is something by the way, Hearthstone has said in the past, right? That if control decks do not have explicit win conditions, that's bad for the game, right? And they want to include stuff that a control deck will eventually use to win it up to to close out a game and beat down an opponent, right? Um And and anyway, and and another version of that is uninteractive decks, which we call solitaire decks, right? Um, A solitaire deck, a good example of a solitaire deck is the old version of Quest. Warlock, right? Quest Warlock basically said you take a bunch of damage on your own turn, so you deal a bunch of damage to yourself, right? And then the final reward is that anytime you would take damage on your turn, you deal that damage to your opponent instead, right? Which includes fatigue. So, if I fat- if I draw out my whole deck, I take a bunch of fatigue damage, instead you're taking that fatigue damage, right? And Quest Warlock was a really, really powerful deck that got nerfed multiple times, um, Um, But I don't actually think it was nerfed. The final couple of nerfs, I don't actually think those nerfs were a power level consideration. Those nerfs were a good deck consideration. It was the realization that given the way the deck had been constructed, this Quest Warlock deck was... Fun, it was just, like, fundamentally toxic. And the reason why is because it's playing solitaire, right? The warlock is just doing things to damage itself. It's not really interacting with the opponent or their board or their board state. It's not making interesting decisions about the opponent, their board, or their board state, right? And all it is doing um, is kind of building up to this to this reward where it will eventually just kind of blow you out. and it give, And it leaves you with this sort of, like, powerless... Like feeling of like, well, what what could I possibly have done to, to change this, right? What decisions could I have made that would have gone that it would have made this go differently, right? This is this is another huh.
0: classic Dave deck as too, right? So it sounds like somebody should send the Hearthstone team the team the, uh, the fourth psychograph article. Um. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean maybe. Um, and another
1: version of this was. Um, and another version of this was Spell Mage. So quest, the old version of Quest Mage, which was all spells, and it was about casting spells of different types, right? Um, And the thing about Spell Mage is that the only requirement to fulfill those pieces of the, of the quest were to cast spells of different, you know, like, spell schools. And it felt, again, very, like, very solitaire, right? Like, no matter what you would do, the mage is going to be casting these spells, going to be building up these, you know... Going to be, be going to be progressing through the quest line and eventually play this thing and the, and the reward for that deck said that you had plus three spell damage for the rest of the game, right? So now you have a bunch of spells that are dealing damage and you just send them all face because they're dealing eight damage instead of six damage, whatever. Like that kind of a thing, right? So these are two classic kind of solitaire decks. And the accusation to Quest Hunter is that Quest Hunter is a solitaire deck, right? All it does is it deals this damage, right? Like, all it does is it deals this damage to progress to its quest and then eventually gets to this thing and then it blows you out, right? But I think that this misses the forest for the trees and the trees in this scenario are secrets. The real power in that quest deck is that there are really strong secrets in Hunter right now that the quest Hunter can use as both fuel in the late game, right, when you play a secret and deal two damage kind of thing, but also as tempo and... defense in the early game right the major defensive tools of uh of this quest hunter deck are in its secrets are in being able to cast specifically freezing trap explosive trap and ice trap right and they all have these different things ice trap i think is the only one you would be familiar with but just to run through them freezing trap says when a minion attacks when an enemy minion attacks it return it to its owner's hand it costs two more Um, explosive trap says that when you attack um, the hunter's face it deals two damage to all enemies so it deals two damage to your like their whole board um and ice trap says whenever they cast a spell that spell essentially gets freezing trapped right it gets bounced back to their hand and it and it costs one more to play right um and the way that you use these in Quest Hunter is to open up sort of your dead turns so that you can set up for power turns, if that makes sense, right? So, um, you know, you don't just lay a freezing trap willy-nilly. You need to lay a freezing trap at such a point where it is going to have the most impact and deal the most damage, right? If an opponent has a bunch of one ones on the board... Right. Laying a freezing trap is actually not really that useful because bouncing a 1-1 one, one to your opponent's hand is not going to do much for you. Right. But if you can bounce a an 8-8 eight, eight to their hand that they spent their whole last turn playing, that's an insanely huge tempo swing. Right. Um, it basically c- like cancels out their whole previous turn. Same thing with spells. Right. One of the things that Quest Hunter, w- or one of the interesting interactions with Quest Hunter was... Um, Big Spell Mage, which is a version of Mage that only runs 9 and 10 cost spells. And so Ice Trap is an incredibly powerful tool against that when you know they are walking into You know they're walking into a power turn where they want to play whatever it is, Rune of the Archmage for nine mana, and you can ice trap that back to their hand, right? Especially because Big Spell Mage has a lot of cards in its decks that are about manipulating the cost of some of these things and being able to cheat them out. So you play it for five mana, you play it for two mana, right? And so if you bounce a two mana Rune of the Archmage, well now that costs ten mana again, and they just ruined not just being able to cast the spell, but they ruined all the time they spent in setting up that mana cost to be so low right and as i'm describing all of this stuff this to me is really good hearthstone gameplay this is interaction right which is you know me making correct reads on what the opponent is doing where they are at their board state what secrets i need to hold on to what secrets i need to play um and basically 25 percent of this package right 25 percent of this quest hunter package is dedicated to secrets because um it includes these six secrets right it includes the Hero card, which also plays two, two secrets. Um, it includes a card called the Dunbaldar Bunker, which is you play it for two mana, and then at the end of your turn, for the next three turns, you draw a secret from your deck and set its mana cost to one. Um, and uh, you also play a card that's called Spring the Trap, where you deal damage to a minion, which advances your quest, but you cast a random secret from your deck, right? And I say, but there, you know, like that actually seems like a good thing, right? Like it seems like tempo to be able to destroy an enemy minion to, to attack or to kill an enemy with some damage, right? And then, Basically draw and play in the same turn a random card from your deck. But actually, Spring the Trap is kind of a downside because the key to the secret package and the kind of Quest Hunter as a whole is being able to really use these secrets for maximum impact, right? Making the kind of read that says, I'm going to lay an ice trap right in front of the mage's turn where I'm going to expect them to... Pop off, right? Or even better than that, when you're, because it's a secret, right? They don't know what you're laying down, where you're laying a secret and you are hoping or you are betting that they aren't clever enough. To figure you like you can you can bluff them with that right is it is it an ice trap well maybe they spend the coin to try and bait the ice trap with the coin but it's not an ice trap it's a freezing trap and all of a sudden they've spent the coin for nothing right like that kind of stuff right i think all of that stuff is really fun and i think all of that stuff is really interesting and um is kind of like the core interactive piece of quest hunter that raises it outside of being a solitaire deck right there's more to this like one of the big interactions is explosive trap because explosive trap will advance your opponent's quest It is actually something of a question of whether or not it is correct if you're playing into face hunter to pop an explosive trap right um because something that you can do for instance and i watch quest hunters do this and do this kind of thing poorly where they will um the quest hunter will lay an explosive trap and I I sit on it. I don't pop it, right? And then I pop it the turn before, like when they have one tick on the quest before they complete it. And now that puts the quest reward in their hand, but it's still my turn. And now I play a disruption card, right? That gets rid of their, you know, I mutinous their... Uh, their quest reward. Now all of a sudden, their whole game plan kind of collapses because they can't blow me out at the end of the game, right? Um, or you theatar it, right? Which switches cards in in you know your hand with your opponent. Um, or you set up something like um, uh, Blade Master Okani, who counters. You know you you can have him counter the next minion that gets played. And those kinds of questions, I think, um, are 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 interesting and complex. And that's it. That's my that's my quest hunter rant. Quest hunter is, is a is a deck about interaction um and it's good actually and it did deserve its nerf it did just get nerfed in the most recent balance patch but i think that's just because everything else got nerfed and quest hunter was going to be unequivocally the best fucking deck in the meta game
0: yeah so i mean it seems to me that like a a burn deck in general is not like i i obviously don't know the contours of this but it seems like a burn deck as a rule just like wouldn't fall into kind of the um the solitaire deck trap in the first place, I think maybe the the issue the issue that, that like the thing that pops to my head is that one, maybe maybe Hearthstone just didn't have enough tools to deal with direct damage, right? Because like, Face Hunter always been a problem, or like you know at least when I was playing, Face Hunter was like a thing that people found aggravating because like there wasn't a lot you could do, like you had to like be prepared for. It. I think maybe that's the issue is that like it's hard to have the tools, like. Hearthstone seems to be a very meta-focused game, and if you don't have the tools in your deck to deal with the meta, the current meta, you're going to have a bad time, and so there's a a level of kind of, like, guessing there, um, maybe. Also, it seems to me that, like, secrets are neat, but, like, they are, like, the only thing that interacts with your, like, the only thing that you can do on your opponent's turn, effectively. Um, And so I think those are just kind of, like, naturally frustrating, because, like... Yeah, like... The
1: thing about Hearthstone, interaction happens on the board, right? Like, that's kind of the core way. And it's sort of like, I think when Hearthstone is at its best, it is sort of this board puzzle, right? Which is to say, can you kind of decode the board in order to have a winning board state over the course of, you know, like, your your turns, right? And Quest Hunter is an interesting question about that because one of the things about Quest Hunter is that most of the spells are burn, right, like, in that deck. Um, and some of them are exclusively minion burn, right? Like, there are cards that, say, deal four damage to a minion, right? Uh, but there's a lot of spells that are... Face burn, right? Like they could you do do deal two damage to everything. And I also think an interesting question about Quest Hunter is okay, well, do I burn my opponent's board or do I burn their face, right? And one of the things that made Renathal so strong is by pumping your life total by 10, it means that when you are are in the end stages of a quest hunter game, you can kind of abandon the board at that point, right? You can lay your 7-7 seven, seven, and you can just kind of say, you know what, I'm not gonna fight for the board anymore. Face is the place. I, I need to burn you out, right? And I think that there's a frustration, you know, alongside that, right? You know, something that that, that is commonly talked about in Hearthstone terms is um, damage from hand, right? Uh, which is to say that, like, you know, your opponent just, like, if I'm just sitting on six or seven direct damage spells in my hand and I can slam all of those over the course of two or three turns, there's not really a lot, of, a lot that you can do to to interact with that right is is the feeling right um i mean, but I I think mean that's, that that's just, kind of
0: that's also just kind of true right like, there's no like counter spells or like protection tricks you can play like in magic right because I'm, I'm I'm comparing this to magic it seems like a deck that is direct damage and secrets seems like would be very frustrating in the hearthstone context when you can't really do a lot to react to any of that right like trap removal there's like is there, It's like trap removal, even a thing. I've, there's like Hunter has like flare, secret, right? Yeah, there so are.
1: It? Yeah, there are. There are secret removal tech cards. The thing about it is that Chris uh, Hunter has never been big enough in the in the deck that people want to tech against it, which is one of the things yeah. that I actually think is really interesting, right? Um, in a world where people are willing to include tech card, like for instance, the most popular tech card right now is probably Smothering Starfish, which is just a three, uh, four mana card, and it silences all minions, right? Um, Which is just a really useful way to get rid of buffs, to get rid of, you know, death rattles, right? Um, To get rid of any passive effects that are kind of, like, aren't on. um, And it was a really powerful tech card for a long time because uh, there was a lot of Divine Shield and hand buffing happening in Paladin um, and just kind of board buffing happening in Druid. And so uh, it was just sort of included as a way to sort of, you you slam it down, um, you're getting rid of taunts, you're getting rid of whatever, you're getting rid of freezes sometimes, right? Um, But no one ever wants to include the secret hate, right? Um, As a tech card, right? Or another example is healing, right? Really the best counter to uh, Quest Hunter uh, is Healing because you have you only have a certain amount of direct burn, right? Um, so when I was playing against Quest Hunter, when I was playing Control Warrior, when I was playing that 100 armor Control Warrior deck, I just fucking laughed. You just slam armor cards turn after turn, it doesn't fucking matter. My armor outpaces your burn, right? Um, and uh, and I think that that's uh, that's like a tough thing because not all classes have access to healing, right? And one of the reasons that Quest Hunter was so strong is because one class that did not have healing, which was Mage is a class that was very popular at the time, right? You can imagine a world where, you know, Priest or Warrior are the best decks in the game, and Quest Hunter just has nothing to do because they naturally kind of counter a deal damage burn deck uh, by healing up a lot and by armoring up a lot.
0: No, that makes sense. Um, but yeah, no, I I think part of the, like, the yeah, so the healing thing is obviously that not all classes have access to healing, and I think the other part of that too is that, like, Secret Hate... If, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but at least three classes have access to secrets, right? Like it feels like a like that seems like a classic. Technically thing four, side- but yes, it, it seems like a thing. you yeah. sideboard in, right? Like te- typically, rather mm-hmm. than like in like a magic context, um, and when and, you know uh, this game is like a mono, um, a, a, like a, a mono class game, right? Like it's not like magic, magic where like you know you could pull in some other stuff, right? And like there's generalized removal, right? Like, like. It, we use the smothering starfish thing, right? Like, silence targets, like, not, like most of what happens in a Hearthstone game, right? Like, because most stuff is attached to creatures. Um, yep. And, like, that general broad-based removal, I think, is, like, much easier to swallow, right? Something like an Oblivion Ring in Magic, right? Whereas, like, you would have, like, a bunch of artifact removal maybe in your sideboard if you ran into an um, artifact-heavy deck and it was in the meta. Also, like, my, underst- my, my, my guess is that Hearthstone's still best of one. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. It's also that
1: uh, sideboarding. So there was a format in professional Hearthstone called Specialist uh, that was essentially sideboarding, which was you brought a deck, but twenty-five cards in that deck had to be the exact same cards, right? Which basically meant that you had to play what you you got to f- sideboard five cards into your deck between you know between matches if you wanted. Um, and one of the things that they learned about Specialists is that you can fucking destroy certain decks in the game just by tech, you know, Just by having five yeah. cards of tech against them, right? That makes sense. Um, you know, there was one. There was one meta where the best deck in the game was uh, this control warrior package, and Rogue had just one card that they could include, and it blew out the whole matchup. Right? They just they just automatically won um, because they shuffled a million copies of a powerful card into their deck, basically, um, and uh, you know th- that is i think a more pain is is a is a pain point in hearthstone that is tough to get you know to get past because it is designed to be one and done
0: yeah it it feels like they need they need some way to option select into secret removal in order to make that less of like a particular problem and it feels weird too because it feels like it feels like only the hunter traps are the ones that like are that i don't want to hate to put it this way but obnoxious right like Like, I feel like the pal- like, at least from what I remember, the paladin secrets and the mage secrets, and I don't know what the fourth class would be. Um,
1: Fourth class is rogue. Oh, that's right. Rogue does have
0: secrets. Um, it
1: only gets secrets, it gets secrets every once in a while, and it gets secrets in a as a unit, right? So, for instance, in Castle Nathria, they added three secrets to Rogue, and it's just those are the three secrets that Rogue has. It gets its own little secret package, right? Um, but, yeah, there are different contours to the sort of secrets, right? Hunter traps tend to be more disruptive than the other two. Technically, you know, Mage obviously has um, like explosive runes, which can destroy a minion when you play it. Um, it has counter spell, obviously. Um, but a lot of stuff like in Mage and especially in Rogue, is less about um, disrupting what your opponent is doing, and more about uh, kind of setting up your own board state, if that makes sense, right? um And uh, and ultimately, I think that that actually makes the trap the, the the those secrets worse, right? You know, like there is a two mana Rogue secret that basically says. Um, if your opponent spends all of their mana, you draw two cards, which is two mana draw two. That's huge. That's really good, right? But the thing is, is that like that doesn't ev- advance. Yeah, like that doesn't affect the board state at all. It just it just puts two extra cards in your hand, and it's like a conditional two extra cards, which is just like a complicated thing.
0: Yeah, and that's like, like I can see why those like secrets are not as impactful, but it also makes them less frustrating to play against, right? Because like yeah. you're, you know, it's not like you're not screwing with somebody else's board state, like you said. Um but anyway, um, uh, just a thought from something that, that I was thinking of just cause like winding back through that conversation, it feels like there's gotta be a minimal state where like, you know, like, like what's, what's the balancing point for when like there are too few cards in the deck for the deck to be, uh, usable, right? Cause you, were oh, like, that's oh. a good question. Yeah. Cause like, you know, you know, obviously if you have one card in the deck, right. It doesn't like you, can't win off of that. Right. There's not enough to do with that. Um, uh so I'm 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 I mean I don't I don't have the the chops to kind of go through it now but I feel I feel like that'd be like an intro, like the, there's like some that seems like a thing some mathematician would do specifically for Magic the Gathering because that's the popular one and maybe Hearthstone is like figure out what like the optimal number of cards in a deck is um or at least some sort of range um, It
1: used to be that the answer was above 30 cards just from uh you know old versions of the meta where you needed to generate extra like extra resources right you would run out of gas if you just played a 30-card deck that didn't do anything special, right? If it just drew cards as your only kind of, like, way to do value. Um, but they actually have changed that quite a lot, and there's not a ton of extra value added into the game, right? Like, there was sort of this point in, in time when Hearthstone was all about, okay, well, who can add the most to their hand from sort of outside of their deck to just sort of generate the raw, biggest, absolute number of cards possible, right? Right. Um, but now decks are a little bit leaner and it is more about, uh, you know, kind of consistency, um, and being able to sort of like draw cards and execute on game plans. And I actually think that that's to the detriment of the game in some aspects, right? One of the things that's really sucky about playing against druid um specifically right now is druid has a lot of access to their own deck because they have cards that are discovering cards in their deck that are tutoring certain cards in their deck that are looking at three cards in their deck and drawing the specific one that they want right um which is just a really useful way to get your most powerful cards in a consistent manner right um because you know for instance the thought experiment of what if there was an anti-Renathal, what if there was a 20-card deck, that, uh, but you lost 10 life, you only had 20 life I actually think that deck would be pretty good in a lot of scenarios, because it would guarantee that if you are playing really huge, really powerful, swingy cards you are getting those cards much more often than normal right, um, and being in a position where you can get your best cards in the game, more commonly at the cost of 10, 10 health is actually a pretty good kind of spot to be in
0: yeah no, that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, it's it's, it's interesting because, like, I, I feel like Magic's in its best place when, like, the decks aren't all, like, you know, four, like, four copies of ten different cards plus lands, right? Like, when there's, like, yeah. right in there. And I feel like that's been the case lately, right? Like, there's a lot of, like, mixing in, in at least the meta decks that I've seen. And uh, I feel like it'd be hard to, like, because, like, the, the other version of this besides Renathal would be like the singleton decks, right? Cause that's like, that is another example of like, you know, same size deck, but also like, you know, you don't get, you, you, you have the consistency cause you can't double anything. Um, that's interesting. Interesting thought, but, um, I'm going to switch to my first thing in the grab bag halfway okay. into the show. Um, Let's go. Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, um, so my big thing uh, is I finished Elden Ring finally put it down and beat it into the dirt. Um, I beat all of the major bosses. I may have missed some secrets. I like. I never beat the uh, the jar, and that was mostly because the uh, the run back was obnoxious. Um, and that's actually so. I I love the Souls games in general. Um, I didn't really attach to Sekiro, but that's because like I kind of attach more to like the the um, the kind of customization aspects, and Sekiro is specifically not that. Um, but. Uh, I really like Elden Ring, right? It's probably going to be my game of the year, but um, I do feel like at some point I just wanted to finish it. And so like those last like handful of hours was a lot of like, maybe I don't need to explore every corner as thoroughly as I, as, as I have been in the past. Cause I could you know, I, I'm clearly powerful enough. I can see the end from here. Let's just kind of go. Um, and once, and also like the game kind of thins out a little bit towards the end too. Like there's, there's still a lot in the game, but there's, like, like um, one of the last areas in the game, uh, spoilers if you haven't beaten Elden Ring, is uh, Crumbling Pharaoh Missoula, which is, like, this big castle in the sky that's that's broken. Um, and so there are some – there are side paths, and there's some, like, neat content there, but, like, it's not nearly as uh, involved as as the rest of the uh, – you know, it's, like, the rest of the game, right? There's not nearly as many secret caves or whatever, Um uh, but, like, you got to the point where it's, like, there's, like, a Dragon of Crumbling Fire and that kept disappearing. I was mean, like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to kill it. It's, yeah, I'm just done with it, right? Like, I'll go do something else. Um, and, uh, but overall, I think the, game's, the, the game is pretty fantastic. There's just so much to explore and so much to, to kind of go into. But um, uh, I, it's, it's also a game that, like, you could replay a bunch just because, like, there's, there's so many uh, different variety of, of builds. Um, but it was, it was, what else do I want to say about this? There was like just so much to go through and it felt very good getting to the end, but it also kind of felt like at a certain point I was, I was ready to be done with it. And I needed to push myself over the edge. So I, I don't know if I've got, um, a ton more to, to, to say about it, uh, in that vein. What are, what but, are
1: some of your favorite things from like Elden Ring? Um,
0: so so in this in this last kind of set of things, um, is I'm kind of effectively in the cleanup phase where a lot of things start coming together. I pick up picked up on a lot of like the themes that were coming from the game in itself, but like part of one of the nice things to do when I, when I was done with it, I could go and watch a bunch of lore videos, right? Not feel like I was spoiling myself on on a lot of stuff. Um, and there's a there's just like a a lot uh, in there, but like standouts to me are like Ranny's quest line. Um, this is the Waifu ending. Um, you go and you, uh, oh, what do you. What do you do? So. So, Rennie, like you meet Rennie in the like the Arnia. Yeah, you you might have met her. She was in that. She she's the person who gives you the summoning bell, um, but she like lies okay. to you about that. But um, she has a whole quest that involves going out to Caled, and like killing her brother and that that. So, the Radon fight is spectacular. Like. Um, is a guy on a horse, um, except he's really big and the horse is really small, like the lore is that he mastered gravity magic just so he can keep riding his tiny horse. Um, but you can summon a bunch of people, like you summon a bunch of NPCs, um, and you're all fighting him, and then he, like, leaps to the sky and there's this giant crash, and then when you defeat him, a hole opens up in the ground, into the underground, and you have to go, and you go fight through a bunch of stuff there, and that's how you advance Brandy's quest line and, um... Just kind of like so Miyazaki has like one theme the 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 I forget what his first name is, but um the uh Miyazaki San I guess is the correct, correct way to say it he has a very consistent theme in all of his games, which is like trying to achieve immortality is bad, it leads to rot and stagnation, and you shouldn't do that right, and that's very true here as well right like the the theme here is that the earth tree so um marika has. Uh, basically, basically by by uh, by creating the Elden Ring, or not creating, by it is complicated. But essentially, by embodying the Elden Ring, she has like gotten rid of death, and death no longer exists. And you know, souls all return to the earth, but you don't die, and that's causing all of these problems. And so you go and you decide how you want to deal. Like, the, the ending of the game is you deciding how you want to deal with the post-Erd tree world. Um, and there's just, like, so much told there through, like, like, there's such great visuals, right? Like, the the end of the game is, like, a, a quick series of bosses, right? And um, just, like, some, like, so, you, you I think you would think this is really cool. You should look up the, uh, um, the Godwin fight. So, basically, it's this giant warrior with a lion on his shoulder, right? And he (laughs) is uh, Marika's first husband, and he shows up to defend the Elden Tree from you. Um, And then all these bosses have two phases. So, in the second phase, he literally, like, pulls the lion off of his shoulder and kills it. Because the lore is that the lion is on his shoulder to basically keep him him from... Because he's, like... He is like a born barbarian, right? Um, and but he like gentrifies himself essentially to become the king. You know the the queen's first consort, um, and so that's that's him like unleashing the rage. Then you know his name changes from Godric to Horalu, which is his original name, and it's just so like. So, like, visually stunning and so cool. And then, like, he immediately, like, grabs you and, like, p- pile drives you. And if you're like me, kills you immediately after that transformation happens. Um, so you have to go <laughs> back and fight it again. But and then after that, um, you go into the Elden Tree and you see Marika hanging. And then she turns into Radagon, which is a thing you could have figured out earlier. Um, they the same person. Um, and... That fight's actually not super great, but then when you kill him, you go fight like a big snaky thing called the Elden Beast, um, which, yeah, I don't know. It just it just feels like such a great culmination of everything. It just feels like it feels like maybe it was around for uh, around for too long. Like like I like it needed to be. Maybe I just needed to play like you know play less of it, but it it, it was I, I had, such mixed feelings about like the pacing of the game because it's like it's as much as you want but like maybe maybe the, the game encouraged... I don't know for someone who's a completionist it's, it's it's like a weird thing to feel right like it's like I'm like going through all these things like there's every so how hmm, do I want to put this the way that I have heard someone um uh, say it, is like everything you like you do all these dungeons or whatever and the the rewards at the end of them are useful for someone. And it's not always you. Right. For at some point it felt to me like I was like, like nothing else was useful for me. Like I was at my kind of my end build. But I kept like wanting to do it for completeness sake. Cause every once in a while there was something. And I feel like maybe that balance was a little off or maybe I just needed to be more willing to push through it. But I still think it's an excellent game. Uh, just a lot there. A lot there. Um, okay. Yeah. Um,
1: what did you think about like the overall like lore? You know, like George R. R. Martin was was kind of touted as a, as a piece of of this. Did you get that sense at
0: all? Um. So I'm not super. I never read any of George R. R. Martin's books, so I couldn't say. Okay. I have heard from other people that like like this feels this feels very much like a, a Miyazaki game, but like I've heard other people say that like. Martin's influence is, is clear is there in that like there are some like things are usually a lot more ambiguous in the Souls games and things are there's some things that are a lot more definite and there's like some so a more definite arc and that's probably Martin because Miyazaki tends to be less connected and less definite about things which is interesting right like like without doing any kind of like big spoilery stuff right like I figured out kind of like the general arc of kind of what was happening Without help, which is not something like I've been able to do for the previous games, um, okay. Uh, before having to dive into the lore videos to get like kind of like the the particulars, um, uh, So you know, I think I think I think that's where the influence comes comes through the most. Um, yeah, I don't know if I got anything else to say about it, which is weird because they put over like I think close to 150 hours into the game. Um. But, yeah, 156.2 hours. So, I don't know. You got got another topic to talk about?
1: Uh, Do I have another topic to talk about? Yes, which is House of the Dragon. Have you seen slash heard House of the Dragon stuff?
0: Uh, I saw, I've seen a screenshot of that guy from Morbius in, like, white hair. (laughs) Mm Hmm? Yeah,
1: so it is also the guy from Hot Fuzz, um, who plays one of the Andes. You remember the, the Andes in Hot Fuzz? Yep. Patty Considine is the is King Viserys in <laughs> in the show. And I've never seen him in anything besides Hot Fuzz. And frankly, he's doing a fantastic job at getting me to forget it, you know, where, where I've seen him previously. Um anyway, House of the Dragon is a very interesting case of I can't believe it's not dead. Uh, it actually set some insane records at HBO for um, uh, for viewership. Uh, and it's because it's just like Game of Thrones just plummeted, just plummeted out of the pop culture consciousness because the final season was so god awful. Um, and the way that it ended just pissed so many people off. And I was kind of convinced that these spin off shows. Um, that have been pitched, these Game of Thrones fi- uh, offs, um, were just never going to get it, you know, they were just never going to get it done, because people don't care about the world anymore, right? Like, once the the, uh, the illusion has been shattered, you can't put that back, uh, you can't put, put that back together. Um, and... I was fucking wrong i don't know man how's the dragon sweet how's the dragon kind of rules i mean part of it is that you know like it's in it's in the building stages there's only been four episodes so far of which i've only seen three because i have not seen sunday's episode um but um it's kind of going back to some of the game of thrones basics in a way um, and it is also less sprawling, right? You know, so one of the things that was interesting about Game of Thrones is that it started very contained, with just this core group of kind of, you, you had you had the Starks, you had Ned, Arya, Sansa, they're all together, right? You have Cersei Lannister. Um, You know, you have Jon Snow, you're following Jon Snow's storyline, and you're following, like, Catelyn's storyline. It's really just about the Starks, and there's a couple of other pieces, right? But over time, as Game of Thrones sort of branched out, well, now all of a sudden you have Sansa and Arya who are in different locations, right? Doing completely different things. You're now following characters like Tyrion, uh, Jaime, and Cersei kind of, like, individually, as also as characters going out and doing their own, you know, going out and doing their own things. Um... You know, you're following brand new characters like Stannis um, and uh, D- uh, Ser Devos of, uh, um, you know, who are who are also doing kind of new things. You have you you have Daenerys, obviously, um, who is so like completely unrelated to all of the rest of these you know players um, that I think Game of Thrones, even uh, even if it was kind of at its height in those middle seasons. Right. Like I think a lot of people would say that season four was Game of Thrones at its best, right? Um, And it includes so many of the, like, super good, iconic episodes of Game of Thrones, um, which I would probably agree with. Um, The fundamentals of a show that has a relatively small cast that is very focused on kind of the politics of the realm and King's Landing and the small council. Like, I don't know how... it's, It's hard to explain how nice it was... Going to a situation where we go to King's Landing and we just watch an interesting small council meeting play out, right? One of the things that you lose over the course of Game of Thrones, particularly as Cersei takes power in King's Landing and ends up just, you know, taking over, the, you know, she fills the small council with sycophants and she kills all of her opponents there, right, is you lose that tension of here is a person who has to, like, win over, you know, their some of their political rivals, you know, just just with, like, raw politics. And the other thing that's interesting is that there's, like, remarkably little warfare um, in the show, right? Like, one of the plot points of the show is that there hasn't been a war in Westeros in 20 years. And so even the knights that are jousting at a tournament, right, these are not battle-hardened men, right? Like, these are, th- their only taste of combat is in tournaments right um and i just think all of that has made for a really interesting a really neat sort of soup of a show um and i guess i'm recommending it for now maybe maybe it'll maybe it'll go bad places in in the future who fucking knows but yeah
0: yeah no i i have what it's like it's that and rings of power are the big ones have you seen any rings of power Mm-mm. neither have i i've heard good things though um, I
1: have also heard good things. Uh, Rachel has been watching Rings of Power, which is honestly kind of crazy because like she doesn't watch any TV, it feels like. Um... And so, uh, and so for her to go out of her way to watch a show like Rings of Pl- uh, Power is interesting and noteworthy. The, actually, I think the thing about House of the Dragon that, that is working, actually, is kind of the same thing about The Mandalorian. You know how everybody says that The Mandalorian is so good because it's returning Star Wars to its roots. It's just a guy uh, who's a bounty hunter doing bounties, right? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. I think a similar principle is happening in House of the Dragon. There is no omnipotent threat, right? There's no White Walkers, Um, you know. The throne is, like, the succession is still in question, but the throne is still solidly in House Targaryen's control right like it's not as though civil war is going to break out and there is someone who is going to threaten the iron throne the same way that stannis threatened to take control of it um, or the same way that you know daenerys was you know is coming to westeros with an army of dothraki um and three fully grown dragons right um and i think the interesting thing Uh, about House of the Dragon is that the question of which of these two people will be the king's heir actually ends up being more kind of complex and interesting to answer because these people have a relationship with one another, right? Like, they can't just fucking fight. It's not just about going to war, right? It is about... It's about who you know, who can sway one another's minds, right? Um, And who is the more kind of sympathetic, uh, sympathetic person, right? Like Damon is sort of set up to be the show's kind of antagonist, I guess. Sort of the the main conflict of the show is that there is King Viserys, right? He's relatively old. He has a teenage daughter named Rhaenys, right? Um, Rhaenys is sort of like you know she's she she's a spitfire she's a firebrand right like she doesn't just she's not meek and submissive or whatever um Viserys has a son who dies or his son and his wife die in childbirth right and his heir is his brother damon but damon refers to his son that just died as an heir for a day and Viserys is so fucking pissed at like at that that he says fuck you damon Rainis is now my heir. You can go eat a dick. Get out of here, right? And that's, like, kind of, like, the core sort of, like, conflict of the show, right? Is that Viserys has named his daughter his heir rather than his son bringing up all of these, you know, like, bringing up all of these fucking um, issues or whatever. Um, anyway, I don't know. I don't have anything more about it than that. It's, it's the shit. Oh, I, w- I do have one more thing about it. They have another kind of ancillary threat, which is a pirate who is funded by um, the... Uh, the free cities to the east uh and he is he is pirates he's pirating along sort of the like the islands in southern western called called the stepstones um that pirate's name is the crab feeder and his thing is when he like takes a ship he maroons the crew on these beaches with these and, and he ties them up so they can't stop anything and these crabs just consume their flesh and it is the most fucking horrifying thing and a very cool villain and i like the crap beater the crap beater's sweet
0: (laughs) all right that sounds that sounds deep i might have to check it out but uh i'm gonna say speaking of succession crises i jumped back into ck3 Uh, (laughs) (laughs) yeah let's go um which you know because like that does sound like a ck3 thing right Like it's like yeah fuck you you're not you're not a good i I'm gonna pick a different one, um, and you know, agnatic, cognatic, Disinherit, all that, all that good stuff. Um, uh, uh, and so the the thing I want to first of all, the game's still great, right? Like I I, I picked up a uh, or I, I started playing as like one of the guys off the northern coast of Scotland, and I started just derping around, and like I ended up becoming the the king of Scotland. I just took it from took the title from the the king in like a moment of weakness, which is just like. Um, you know the game is you know the, as the, the same as it ever was, but like there, it's it's always about kind of like finding something to to play for, um, and so like you know at some point I might go back and play Liberia, uh, game, um, uh, but um, the thing the thing I kind of want to talk about at this point is um, there's a new DLC out, It's an event pack, it's five dollars, um, but it's basically all. Um, it's all, like, a bunch of, of, of events, right? Like, which is a thing that's modelled into the game, right? Um, but the uh, the response I've seen is, like, you know, when I went to look at it, it's, like, mixed reception and all that. Um, and it came along with, like, a, a hefty free update. So it's not, like, most of the content was, like, locked behind the paywall or whatever, or most of the kind of, like, mechanical stuff. But of uh, the rules were, like, you know, $5 for a bunch of text. And my immediate response was, like, have you guys heard of a book that, um, Cause that's basically what, you know, five bucks for a bunch of text, but, um, it got me thinking about like, like, I don't think that's a reasonable thing. Um, I think that like, you know, curated content for a relatively low price is kind of like fine. There's some people who, who try and make, I think a better version of the argument, which is like, well, if they're selling this, right. Like this is just, this is just paradox going, you know, starting downhill and they're just going to start nickeling and diming people for everything. Do you have, do you have any particular thoughts on that? I am.
1: I do. I. Uh, I sort of do think. I don't know. My framework for this is total war, and maybe total war just has above average um, DLC. But I guess I kind of. I guess I kind of sort of agree. I don't know. That like. Um. You know. Okay. So. To put on my game game developers hat for a second, one of the things we talk about in in marketing games is called a hook and an anchor. I may have explained this on the podcast before, right? Which is to say, the hook is sort of the promise of something new, right? It is the thing that the game shows you that makes you go, "Oh, I've never." I've never seen that before. That's that's cool. I want to do that thing, right? Um, and the anchor is the reassurance that the game is going to be the kind of game that you enjoy and that you like, right? So, for instance, in, you know, any years... Uh, okay, actually, a good example of this might be in World of Warcraft, right? The hook of Shadowlands is covenants right oh you get to make a choice about how your class is going to play over the course of you know like over the course of the expansion it is this thing that we have never done before we have never tried before right um and uh and you know th- that experimental nature is new and exciting and interesting and it's going to get you to, t- to try it out dragonflight meanwhile has a very strong anchor which is we're bringing back talents, right? People remember talents from classic. They remember liking talents from classic, and we think we can. We, you know, it has been twenty years. We now have the capability to build new, interesting talent trees, right? That will keep players excited. Um, in a in a like in a in a long term sense, right? Um, and I guess what I'm hearing is there's not a lot of hook to like. Like, when, when, the what the criticism of strings is that there is not a lot of hook does that make sense
0: there's I, I feel like I feel like it's 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 all hook though right like cause it's all like new events right like it's all like new kind of like shiny things to, to play with but only you know it's all like friendship events and whatnot um, and like I don't know I feel I feel like I don't know if maybe, maybe hm I don't know if it fits too well into that paradigm though like
1: the thing too is. Yeah, like I mean, so to be clear, I'm not saying it is either a hook or an anchor. Right. I, I just explained no, 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 because they are paired.
0: I, I get what you're saying, but like but the thing that's weird to me is like it's not a full fledged expansion. It's not supposed to be, it's only five dollars, mm-hmm. right? Like um and um I think I think part of the issue here too is that like it feels like you're basically paying five dollars for what you're paying five dollars for is actually the entire update but you can actually get most of that update without paying $5, right? Which in theory is a win, but like when you're valuing it on like what you get for the $5 is like not great. Or like it feels maybe not great, if that makes sense. Like, yeah, I don't know. I also think, I, I think that like pricing for, we've talked about the pricing for DLC a bunch, but like, you know, I paid $10 for a horse head in Rumbleverse, right? Like that by all accounts is much less content than, um, then uh, I would get it. Get, I paid for this $5 string pack um, you know. that I get out of that. But, like, I also didn't pay anything for Rumbleverse. Like, the o- the only thing maybe I would give the people who are critics of this is, like, I saw a bunch of people being like, if you bought the Collector's Edition, you should have gotten this for free. Maybe I'd be on board with that. But, like, I don't know. I find it hard to be, like, mad about any of it, right? Because, it, it, like... It is so optional that it's not a problem if you don't buy it, I guess. Uh, Yeah, and so
1: that's the thing. That's kind of why I'm saying it feels like it has no hook, right? If it feels, if it feels like you you should get this thing, that's because it has a strong hook in a in a positive way, right? Like there's also kind of a compulsory aspect of that that's that's not good or fun, obviously. but I, I, I guess my thing, and the reason why I'm thinking about Total War, so Total War doesn't do small packs like this, obviously, right? Like, right. the way that Total War structures... Well, it, it did the gore DLC pack for packs. five bucks, didn't it? Well, that's true. That, that's a ratings thing, though. It's so that they can get a rating that's T for teen, but then provide you with a, a rating that would make it M for mature, right? Like, if the, if the gore is only in the DLC, the game itself is T.
0: Right, but do, do Boy, they have to charge you for it. it for that to be the case? Uh, I like, know. I mean, I don't know. I guess not. Right. Like they could just be like, here's the gore edition. Here's not. They're both the same price. Right. Like go buy this one and then offer it as a DLC for people who bought the non gore edition and want to add it on. Right. But like, yeah,
1: I mean, technically, like I got the gore pack for free because if you buy one of the blood for the blood god packs, you get all of them or something. And I think I bought it in Total War Warhammer one. Um and it just care it just rides forward or whatever but just like that th- that's a little bit of a, a special case right really like sure. a typical a typical DLC you have two you have um a, a, a race pack a faction pack right which is like Vampire Coast or Tomb Kings which is a whole new you know, like, race to play with, right? And, and a variety of legendary lords and mechanics and all the stuff that that's included as part of that. Or you have lord packs, right? Lord packs are, there is there are two new lords for existing factions, and they bring with them units, heroes, you know, all, all of the, the gameplay mechanics kind of as as a part of that. And there's sort of this promise to the lord packs that they how, are going to be... How much are right? lord
0: packs, just just to set the
1: uh 15 okay 12 dollars let me see let, let, let's actually compare because i can bring this up um if i were to buy interesting 10 10 uh the lord packs are 10 dollars. the campaign packs are 20 dollars, right okay um but the thing is because it, in, it includes this whole package right of it's not just it is a it is a new legendary lord with new mechanics associated with it, right? So, for instance, Throt the Unclean, who is a legendary lord that came with the Wood Elf pack, right? Um, Throt the Unclean has this whole mechanic that is just him, that is about your mutating, you know, flesh vats, right? Where you're throwing in all of this stuff, and out pops, you know, mutant rat ogres and and wolf rats, and you can you can augment, you can gene splice your units and mutate them further to make uh, this that or the other thing sort of like happen but it makes them unstable and if they're unstable they'll start taking damage over time and then they and then they won't be able to heal between battles and it's just they're slowly deteriorating because you've mutated them so many times right that's like a whole mechanic set right that you kind of layer on top of you know Skaven right on top of having new units for your army right having a new option for a lord having new um, having all, all these other like new mechanics in order to in order to make things honestly even maybe just the easiest One is a new star position, right? Being able to start the game as a legendary character in a completely different side of the map that hasn't been explored, that isn't something where, um, you know, you have been. uh, You typically start. Yeah, where you typically start, right? Like that is a new, interesting experience. And there's a lot of hook, I guess, to that. Um, I feel like what the Friends and Foes event pack is sort of doing is sort of this aggregate thing of refreshing a system that already exists, right? You know, the system, the event system, being able to make friends with people, that's something that's that's built into the game and has been built into the game for quite a while, right? Um, it's just that you now have new contours to explore that because the number of events that you can trigger and the number of ways that you can interact with people has sort of expanded. And that just, it feels like that, thats almost like a, it's almost like a, like a, you know, like a, like an item rework in WoW or something like that, or like, or like League of Legends, where the characters I'm playing are basically the same, you know, they're, they're not really all that different, but like some of the underlying systems that I engage with are now different, right? Oh, instead of granting us a bunch of gold, Dragon now grants us these passive benefit, like elemental
0: benefits or whatever else, right? Does, does that make sense? It does. Part, part of me also thinks that like part of the issue here is like this I think I think Paradox maybe wants you to see it like a unit pack or like a music pack. Um because it's like you know, there's like gameplay implications for it, but it's not like, you know, it's not strictly necessary, right? Like a, like you know, like like you know, like the costumes of Iberia pack or whatever in like the previous games where it's like the people in Iberia will have, you know, turbans on instead of like the standard outfit right and that's totally optional and like no one really gets mad about it because they don't feel bad about not buying it um, right. and this kind of like is mostly flavor and so people but like there's enough mechanical hook in there that people feel like maybe they they should buy it because like like there are I guess, I guess there are gameplay ramifications right? you can't like like one of the ones that they tout is like maybe somebody you go to marry will want you to defeat them in a duel before they let you marry them right, like, and that's cool, that's flavorful, um, maybe not strictly necessary for the game, but, like, if you don't have it, maybe you feel bad in the way that you don't feel bad about having, not having the Sabaton song pack, um, but, I don't know, that's, that's my best guess there, I don't know, It feel, but, like, I also feel like, again, like, paying for curated content doesn't bother me as much, I don't know, this is effectively, yeah effectively what this is, right, like,
1: yeah I almost wonder if like I feel like if i were if I were paradox I don't know I wanna say I would have swapped things around a little bit and I would have made this stuff free because players don't super care about it all that much
0: um well, they care enough about but, it right like they they care more about it than they do about costume packs, but not enough but not enough that like you know they feel yeah yeah oh well, i also yeah. i also think that there's like Maybe people are getting to, like, the, um, like, you know, Paradox, its model has always been, like, sell you the base game for a standard thing, and then over the next year, support it for a while. Um, and maybe people are starting to reach their breaking point with kind of that model, right? Because, like, you know, buying all of, how much, let me, let, me, let, me, let me check. If I wanted to go to buy all of Europa Universalis 4, how much would it cost?
1: Oh man, it's hundreds of dollars. Well,
0: your 4 for is free right now. Wow. Um, I guess it's. Uh, oh no, it's it's a free weekend. That's why okay. it's seventy five percent off right now. Um, uh, I guess so. Adult DLC to cart two hundred and thirty dollars and sixty five cents, and. I don't know if that includes the stuff that I already have or not, and it's all on sale right now because it's a free it's like half everything but the latest stuff is like on sale for fifty percent off. Um, like the things that are on sale are like Lions of the North um and the expansion subscription right like they, they've they've got an expansion model, so maybe people are getting are like not happy with that anymore because like you know they've effectively abandoned Imperator, which I know people are salty about um. Uh. Yeah, I think I think the
1: the tension here is the I think the tension here is between games and as service and DLC models, right? These games are set effectively games as a service, right? Like that's what Total War is at this point, right? Like that's what Warhammer is. Um, but, like, instead of selling something that would be more straightforward, right, you know, like a subscription to an MMO um, or a battle pass to, you know, some of these some of these other titles or um, even just, like, kind of a, a, an expansion season pass kind of thing, like Destiny maybe has something like that, right? Or even just, you know, a, like a free-to-play cosmetics game, like League of Legends, right, um, which is trying to constantly entice you with new cool skins, Um the the thing i think is the this dlc model is pretty old and we also know that dlc has a huge fall off this is something you know like most people who buy a game you know like are going to buy it it's going to sit in their steam library and they're going to be like oh I'll get around to this later and then they never sort of do right um so DLC by its very nature is going to attract this like subs- you know th- this subset of players who actually kind of like got interested and invested in the game in the first place and want to kind of like continue on with that experience um and i think it's very fair pricing but it sort of reminds me of like uh do you remember there's like a guy who took over jc penny for a year like some studio like yeah, some, the ceo uh, of
0: jc penny so like the, the traditional department store model is everything is very marked up but there are great sales every week that are like very big um but no one ever actually buys things that aren't on sale basically um yeah and so the ceo of jc penny the new ceo of jc penny came in and was like what we're gonna do is we're gonna get rid of all that nonsense or we're just gonna sell stuff Above the sale price, but like at a, a standard price, and we're not going to do the, the doorbuster sales. Um, revenue fell off a cliff. Everybody hated it. He got fired and then went back to the old model. Um,
1: yeah, and and I think and I think part of that, you know, like the the typical thing that people say is the reason that that model fell apart is because it was not. You know, like you never felt like you were getting a deal, right? Which is which is a question of fairness, right? Um, You, it feels like I'm taking advantage of this thing. There's a huge opportunity. I have to act now, right? Um, And that that feeling of fairness of. I am getting a fair deal versus I'm getting an unfair deal is I think kind of what is maybe sort of like underlying this, like maybe DLC, you know, like maybe we say as gamers or whatever, that we want this sort of expansion pack model, right? We don't want to be nickel and dimed for shit like the battle pass. There's a huge controversy right now in the overwatch community because, um, the overwatch battle pass locks heroes, right? Um, so if you want to, to pick up a, you know, like if you want to play the junker queen or whatever, um, you need to buy the battle pass. It's they, actually on the free track of the battle say, pass. I was
0: going to it was going to be on the free track, but yes, go yeah. On. So
1: it's on the free track of the battle pass. But like, if you own the battle pass, you get more experience, and getting more experience means you're going to get there faster, and therefore, some people are going to have the Chucker Queen and some people aren't, and it's going to mean that you can't counter even though. I actually think that this whole thing is super fucking stupid. Uh, uh, basically, an Overwatch bro wrote a whole thread about how nobody actually fucking counterpicks. People play the thing that they are best at, and they don't worry about counterpicks. And so, the only people who are really hurt by this are the people who like intend on maining characters that are going to be in the Battle Pass. And even then, most of them are still going to get it in due time anyway, right? Like, really, it's this privileges people who play Overwatch more than people who don't play Overwatch. But whatever the case may be. Whatever the case may be, <laughs> um, uh, you know, like there, there is that question of, um, you know, do we really want the fair thing, or do we want the unfair thing, right? Um, do we want to, to, to sort of have a, have a, I don't know, a different sort of pricing model because it appeals to us in a, in a, in a psychologically different way. Um, I think about this, especially when it comes to. Um, I think about this, especially when it comes to how people will sometimes talk about battle passes as this predatory monetization strategy, which is interesting because something that you and I were expressing not all that long ago was about how it kind of felt like there wasn't a real reason to continue playing, um, you know, uh, uh, not Rumbleverse, what was the other game? multiverse. Multiverses, Multiverses right? yeah, yeah. Yeah, and and that game has a battle pass and I am motivated by the battle pass in Hearthstone for instance, right? On Sunday night I was like, "You know what? I have not done my Hearthstone quests, but I want to complete the battle pass, right? I want to I want to get to the end of the battle pass." Um so I sat down for a couple of hours and I banged out a ton of Hearthstone games so that I could get through all of my quests, right? Um and that's just a really interesting that's a really interesting place to be in, uh, where trying to find good reasons like to motivate your play is a. I don't know. It's like that's that's the part of how uh, the monetization strategies are going to have to break down.
0: Yeah. No. So this is this is interesting too, because like, you know, I mean, you were talking about like Overwatch 2, right? Part of the problem there is that the characters up to this point have been free, right? Like you never had to buy them, right? But like think about something like Street Fighter. Right, like character packs since like the internet era have been a thing, right? In every fighting game, um, and no one really like blinks an eye at that. Like people will get mad that like DLC characters are overpowered or whatever, but that's not a problem with DLC per se. That's a problem with like balancing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting because like you know, I think I think Street Fighter has the opp- the option to like fight enough to like get like for the free currency to buy stuff, kind of like League of Legends. Um, as, as sort of the cash, Charles was pretty famous for saying at some point, it's like, you know, at this point I have more money than time. So I'm just going to buy the heroes I want in League of Legends. Um, yeah. Well, that's actually a a very common thing that people talk about when they
1: talk about this Overwatch thing is, um, you know, the, uh, because it is locked behind the battle pass and is locked behind effort in the battle pass, it is actually unfair to the whales who would rather... I just want to play the Junker Queen. Let me fucking buy the Junker Queen, right? Like, I don't want to have to sit here and grind out games on the ladder in order to do the thing I want. I want to play the character I want to play. Um, and I think that that is the opposite of what you normally hear, right? You know, this is kind of like... Uh, you know, you 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 hear that players want to earn their rewards, right? Um, you know, in like in WoW, for instance, or whatever. You want, you don't want someone to be able to buy. We talk about pay to win. You don't want somebody be to be able to buy KSM. You have to earn KSM, right? Um, yeah. So it's interesting that there's this argument being made from the other perspective that no, actually, I should be able to just buy it. <laughs> like,
0: I, I think I think that's, it's it's interesting what these things fall into, though, because like I feel like, I feel like, you know evoker as like a class feels like something that doesn't feel wrong to buy right putting on a battle like imagine if you had to like you know do a hundred levels of battle pass whatever that means for wow in order to get access to evoker right like i think people might be mad about that right like i mean hey you had to level a character to
1: level 55 in order to get it to make a death knight so i had to level a character to level 100 to make a demon hunter
0: i think i think that that's that's fair, but, like, that's also not a heavy lift, right? Like, if you're actually playing the game. Uh, because like, I bet it would be a similar amount,
1: actually. I bet it would be a similar amount of time in order to, in order to like, level up a battle pass a bunch and in order to level a character in World of
0: Warcraft, right? Like, it, it takes tens of hours. Um, I, th- I think it takes longer to get through a battle... It depends on where it is in the battle pass. Yeah, uh, I,
1: that's true. I am assuming it is earlier in the battle pass rather than deeper yeah. in the battle pass, but it is true. I, if it did take... To the end of the battle pass, that would take fucking forever, and would be much longer. Yeah, so yes, no, I,
0: that, that's fair. Um, and also like, and so I think I think part of it too, and like I don't know how the Overwatch battle pass works, uh, but like part of it is like you know if I don't get around to it, it'll be locked off for me, and I won't be able to earn it for free, even though I paid money for it. I think that's like part of the chief against the battle pass in general is like it is less than the value of the items on the pass, but you have to go earn it, and you have to you actually have to put the time in to earn it and if it's like too difficult like one of the common criticisms of the multiverse battle pass is actually too hard to get to the end of right to make it worth worth the price um, and on top of that you have to get a bunch of stuff that you don't give a shit about on the way there right like um, and i think i think that's probably, like you know that's maybe like so the thing you're identifying is like it's not unfair to the whales cuz the whales will just buy their way up the battle pass right it's unfair to the people who would like like to spend you know, five to ten dollars on a character, but instead have to spend fifteen dollars on about on a character, and then like sixty dollars to unlock thirty levels of the battle pass, right? Um, in order to play the Drunker Queen now, uh, which, yeah. you know, I think I think is is, is kind of the the, the big uh, the big conflict there. Um, yeah, I, I was, so like honestly, if I was just designing Overwatch... if somebody asked me, you're in charge, or told me you're in charge of the monetization model for this, I would say. Put the characters on the free track of the Battle Pass, and let people buy them directly if they want. Um, and you know, maybe if I'm feeling extra generous, give them like a free costume in that slot for that character instead of uh, instead of the character if they've bought it previously. So
1: yeah, there's a part of me that thinks that Overwatch has sort of failed. And ex- there, there was this experiment with Overwatch, which was you know um, that the philosophy of Overwatch was. You should be able to swap characters at any time and uh, counterpicking is really important and they don't mind if one character really hard counters another character because you can just swap off of it or whatever compared to something like League of Legends where, you know, even if you do have counterpicks, you, you need to expect a certain amount of fairness between, you know, like two different two different kind of opponents. And I sort of wonder if that experiment has kind of failed just because of the people's play patterns, right? I'm going to get good at my set of characters and be good at those characters is more important than counterpick my opponents, right? What, te- But, however, the, the flip side of that is that I do think that it has a real safety valve for I'm getting shit on, which is nice, right? Yeah. One of the things that I think helped me fall back into Overwatch is when I was playing characters who sucked into the competition, when I was playing, you know, when I was playing Pharah, who's, who's one of my favorite characters in Overwatch, and I was getting sniped out of the sky by Widowmaker, well, that's fine. I just swapped to Soldier 76. And all of a sudden, this thing that was really frustrating is, like, gone, right? Whereas, you know, with older, you know, kind of counterpick stuff, uh, like when I'm playing Lucian into Caitlyn or something in League of Legends, I'm stuck as Lucian that whole fucking game. There's no going back, right? Um, and that's interesting. That is kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, I, I think I think weirdly the problem might like, you know, this this is this is a uh, this is actually a callback to Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite, which didn't have the X Men because at that point Disney hadn't acquired the X Men yet, um, and so um, uh, the guy. The, I forget. I forget the the dude's name, but he was an FGC guy. He had the thankless task of being like the community manager, like from the community. It's like, well, it's the same kind of like. I, he used a word that I can't remember, but it's, essentially, it's the same mechanics. It doesn't matter that it's not Wolverine, and and then like the, the response is like, of course it fucking matters that it's Wolverine. I like Wolverine, right? Like, uh, <laughs> um, and I think that like, that's part of the problem here, right? It's not just that you like playing, say, Junkrat, right? It's not it's not the mechanics of that particularly. It's that you think the aesthetic is cool and you want to play that as well, even if it's not the most mechanically optimal thing, right? Like when I play when I play fighting games, like I am not into I do not like charge characters typically, and I'm not into like, you know, um like heavy combos. In Street Fighter Four, I got really into Dudley, which is one of those characters because I really liked his aesthetic. And I think I think part of the problem with like the switch off aspect of overwatch is like no but i bought this junkrat skin or even if i didn't buy the junkrat skin i like junkrat i want to i want to play junkrat i don't want to like do a thing just because it's like the right thing to do and i think that's like i think uh, weirdly if overwatch had been like more generic right if it'd been more like team fortress 2 and um it's weird because team fortress 2 kind of like moved into the like the classes have a character to them space but they didn't it didn't initially have that um who more like Team Fortress Two? People maybe wouldn't have felt as bad about it. I also think there's like a, a weirdness here to like. I, I've seen I've seen it, this, is, this is an interesting topic to kind of segue into. Um, it's something I've seen on Twitter a bunch. Is like matchmaking killed, um, killed like the, the like '90s, aughts like shooter culture, which is like mm-hmm. used to be dedicated servers where you just jumped in and you kind of did whatever because like you know, like if you wanted to just kind of like frag some people on two fort or like something I would do in team fortress was I would jump in and like if I was planning on just like you know derping around I could like jump into a two fort 24 hour server where like no one ever actually won the game you just kind of like sniped at each other I could like jump on heavy and like try and like snipe people with the taunt which is a thing you can do and like I would never do that in like a serious game because like you know that's obviously not pushing for the objective or anything right just like me being a dumbass and you know honestly be toxic behavior if i didn't like you know imagine if like you know imagine if like bard had an emote that would one shot kill someone but it was like no chance of landing unless you weren't paying attention right if i spent the whole game trying to to do that um i feel like oh you know or like trolling people with bartle right like in like in kind of like you couldn't really construct uh a thing that like made sense for this in 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 the league of legends setup but like if you could, right? Like if you could have a dedicated server where you just kind of like ran around and fucked around with with, with characters, <coughs> trolling people with Bartle, that's not a problem, right? Like that's just having fun in your own way because you're not like because presumably everybody in the server is there for that reason, right? Like mm-hmm. or like you know that that's like part of the thing. And like if you want a competitive game, you go to a server where there's a mod that's gonna like you know shove you out like you know if you do that they're gonna shove you out the airlock and be like we don't do this here. Go go find a shit, a shit posting server where they do that. And that's fair enough, right? Like, matchmaking basically killed all those kind of alternate modes of play, right? Like, skating in in CSGO, or not CSGO, in CS Classic comes to mind. I don't know if there's an equivalent in in Go. Um, Like, all these kind of, like, alternate game modes, or, like, you know, just, like, tooling around and talking to people or whatever. Um, Like, a lot of that, I think, has kind of, like, disappeared. Like, a lot of that got killed by matchmaking, which... For the core experience is obviously a good like you know I think matchmaking serves what matchmaking wants to do very well but the death of dedicated servers kind of like screwed with that and I feel like Overwatch is actually a game that cries out for like a dedicated server because like I'm sure like a dedicated server mode because like not only are people gonna like do the fuck around stuff right and like you know just like play pranks together with with junkrat but I'm sure there's also like roleplay servers that'll pop up and people, like, play the characters. So, so
1: funnily enough, I, I actually think that that does exist. It's the workshop, right? Like, Overwatch has a very complex uh, sort of, like, modding workshop sort of thing where you can make really crazy custom matches. And I got really deep into it, actually, for a while. Um, you know, where you're playing, uh, you're playing like, versions of zombies or whatever. The big thing... Or I'm sorry, it's called the arcade, not the workshop. The arcade is, um, is actually very cool. And the coolest thing about it is that in your... Queue for match made competitive Overwatch. You can go into an arcade mode, right? Like one of the arcade modes that I have spent hours of my life playing is—it's uh, called like one, like one night in Reinhardt or something like that, or something like uh, Infinite Reinhardt's or something. And it is literally just you choose a character. The character is is typically buffed and balanced in a certain sort of way, and then every like ten seconds a huge group of Reinhardts spawns in the corner of the room. And they just start coming at you they want to kill you. They're all bots, right? And you have to kill all of the Reinhards, and then 10 seconds, and then a new batch of Reinhards spawn. And the Reinhards get particularly, like, like slowly get more and more powerful. They have little affixes, right? There's one part where you kill a Reinhardt and it pops into two smaller (laughs) Reinhards that, like, run after you. You know, the Reinhards don't always have their moves. They don't always have ultimates and their charge and stuff. Um, But sometimes they will get those, right? Like, um, And it's just, like... It is the dumbest game, like, the funnest game mode. Like, because you're waiting in queue, you have five minutes to spend, you just kill a bunch of fucking Reinhards. But then one night, me and Stoops, a friend of mine, were waiting for another friend of ours to get online, right? Um, Because we were going to play some WoW together, and he was like, well, what do you want to do? I was like, let's just fucking kill Reinhards until he gets online. And we ended up playing Reinhards for 90 minutes straight, so much so that we missed the text from our friend that said, actually, I'm not getting on tonight. You know, like go without me kind of thing. And we're just sitting there killing Reinhardt. And it's just like that is uh that is kind of what this like dedicated server experience is sort of like. It just happens to exist in a corner of the game that is not often talked about,
0: right? Yeah, no, um, that's fair. compared
1: to the competitive corner, right?
0: Yeah, no, I, I I think that's fair. I think that's fair. Yeah. Um but yeah. Uh huh. We we're really at
1: at sort of time. We have uh, we, uh, Is there is there more? Did you have anything else on your plate that you wanted to
0: talk about? Uh, what else did I do? I played a bunch of more Rumbleverse this week. Rumbleverse is still sweet. Um, I'm <laughs> starting. I'm getting high enough in the in the game that like I'm playing against killers, and so like the game's a lot a lot tougher. But st- it's it's like now I have to like like brush upon my fighting game's chops and, like, oh, I can't just, like, run at people and dropkick them. They will fucking punish me for that. I gotta figure yeah. stuff out. Um, uh, and I, the game's still, I'm still holding with the game, but, like, it kind of makes me want to go back to, like, strive and, like, like put more effort into that, because, like, um, it just, like, feels, like, the most unfair parts of Rumbleverse are when, like, you've, like, won an exchange and then you get third-party. 3rd third to and you die. Even though you, like, did all the right things, you just kind of, like, you know, you're in recovery frames from an attack against the second guy, and a third guy comes in and kills you. Um, uh, but uh, And the only other thing is, um, just a, a comment, actually, is I've been playing a little bit more WoW than I had been previously. Um, oh, yeah.
1: So wh- what is your feeling on Season 4 so
0: far? Um, I don't know, like, may, we're, like you know, our guild isn't really pushing, like, heroic, faded content or anything. But uh, I find the faded like, and so I haven't like felt like that the faded aspect of it is that interesting. Actually, um, maybe it's more interesting if you're like a, a group that's like dedicated to pushing heroic or whatever. Um, uh, but the thing that's weirdly like affected me the most is they merged the auction houses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that like honestly, like it is harder to play the auction house with the, with the merge. Like you can't like manipulate the market as easily. But stuff also sells a lot faster, which is, like, neat in a way, right? Like, it's like, I don't have to work, like, you know, as long as they put, like, a... Re- like, the game I'm playing now isn't, like, can I drive up the price? It's like, what price can I put it at and it ha- still have it sell out, right? Like, that's not necessarily the lowest price anymore, which is an interesting and fun game fun game to play. In its you know, own an
1: interesting uh, I, I, an ec- economist that I knew had a like a friend of my dad's and I was playing a lot of wow at the time. And we were at a dinner in New York city and I was just talking about playing. the. This was like, it's maybe in 2010, 2011. I I think it was in cataclysm. And I was explaining to him how I was manipulating the auction house to corner the market. Right. And he was immediately really interested in this. He was like, he was like, what do you mean? You, you you corner the market one person, you corner the market. I was like, yeah, Uh, you know, a server, a couple thousand people. Right. It's a very small environment. Um, and I can just be online and check it quickly enough, and I can check it from my phone, from the mobile auction house or whatever, that anytime anybody undercuts me, I can buy them out, and then I just repost their stock at the higher price, right? Um, and then we started, like, talking a little bit about the math, and he wanted, he was like, well, okay, well, wh- how do you generate this stuff? Like, where does it come from? And I'm like, oh, well, it just exists in the game, right? And he's like, yeah, sure, but, like, but like where? You have to go find it? And I was like, well, not really. You go to a place, and these nodes spawn... And you mine the nodes and, and you give, and he's like, they just, like, what do you have to do? Do you have to do anything to make them spawn? They just appear out of nowhere? I was like, yes. He was like, really? And the thing that he said that was really interesting, um, and, it, and the, the, the conversation eventually got away from this, but he was talking about how that's crazy. That's fucking nuts because it kind of means everything is profit at that point right you know you never have to like in in the real world with finite you know with finite resources you always have to have a certain amount of overhead right on on anything because you know um even if you are going to let's say i'm going to go build a mine in montana or something like that right well you have to buy the rights to that land right you have to buy all this equipment to mine the thing out of the ground right um but in World of Warcraft, you just fly to the node and you click it for five seconds and it's yours, right? And you can sell that at whatever price you want because it's raw profit at that point, right? Like, the only investment is time, basically, right? And I guess, technically speaking, the coppers you spend on a pickaxe or whatever, right? You know, the gold yeah, you yeah. spend to pick up Shadowlands mining or whatever. And I have always thought about that as, as a very interesting thing, right, where it's the it's all profit it's all profit um which is why obviously the game includes all of these gold sinks in order to you know strip gold out of the system because people are just generating profit hand over fist so it's
0: Um, it's not quite all profit i know this because i've been trying like i have too many veiled augment runes um and there's a deposit on the auction house which isn't quite mm. and that's that can be for like like for like mats. It's generally not significant, but for like veiled augment runes, like the, they're like hovering at around like last time I checked, they were hovering around like fourteen gold, and that's like not a lot over the deposit. Um, so, um, although maybe, that's actually that's
1: interesting. That is true. I didn't think about it that way because the the deposit is actually keyed to its vendor sell price, right? Yeah. Um, where if you were to just vendor this thing, uh, what what would it be, right? Um, although like, and I, I think it is, is deposit
0: is, at, like twelve hours, maybe now. That's actually an interesting thought. That I sit out. Oh, with. I do that
1: on all, all of all of my auctions. I put on twelve hour deposits because, I mean, I, I'm not playing the auction house right now because I just haven't touched WoW since Total War came out. But um, the 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 way to go is to do twelve hours because by the time you come back after twelve hours, even if it's up for forty eight, someone's undercut you by that point, right? Like it's yeah, not fair. even you. Like when are you going to sell something in hour thirty six of it being up? That's a really uh, uncommon. Cosmetics,
0: point. maybe. Oh, that's actually fair. Yeah. yeah. That's actually so that's the thing that's super interesting to me is that like, you know, selling selling non current pieces or even I think even like current pieces of gear might work this way. But like specifically gear that's like only going up for Mog, right? Like that doesn't like that kind of rarely sells. You kind of kind of keep keep it up for a while. Um, that's
1: true. Yeah, that's what that's what my legendaries are like, right? And yeah. and it's funny because the, the merging of the auction houses is something that directly benefited my legendary production. But I don't know, I just can't be asked to like sit down and, and craft them. Because the thing is is that um what so the we have a small server and so one of the one of the dynamics of the market on that server is that mats are expensive, right? But it also means that there are fewer crafters who are making legendaries, so there's much less competition in that legendary market, which is how I was able to make 20 million gold, right? Like I it's just that is printing gold, right? That is just raw profit for me, um, because I can list these legendaries and they don't sell all that often, right? But like when they do, they sell for huge markups based on their crafting cost, right?
0: Well, so it's, it's not um, all, that's interesting because it's not all profit, right? Like you actually have to pay for the mats, right? Like it's- that's true.
1: Yeah, it would be. I mean, there have been times when I have farmed out mats for it, but I will only ever farm out mats that are like. Like a piece of it, right? Like maybe I will farm 200 Phaedrum over 45 minutes or whatever in order to to, to round out, you know, a couple pieces of Shadowghast, whatever for the thing, right? But the the volume that you need in order to craft legendaries is so high that it would cause co- it would it would take hours, right? Like it would take me five hours to farm out every single mat that I need for a legendary. What you do is you use the auction house as the market to source your raw materials for the legendaries, right? Where I am, and I actually have spreadsheets for this, right? Where I can put in, I just quickly jot down, what what's the market price of all of these things, right? And it'll spit out the number, this is how much it costs to craft the legendary right now. And then I look at that, and I look at its sell price, and I go, well, this is 30k in profit, right? Um, anyway... So, the thing about the Auction House merge is that now the market includes not just me, but includes these huge, huge servers, right, like Tichondrius, where in Tychondrius you have more people farming, so mats are depressed, but you also have more people crafting, so the profit margins on the Legendaries are worse, but the Legendaries are not cross-faction, they are still cross-server, they are server-locked, right, because you can't trade gear across server on the Auction House, it's only raw materials, so... The, uh the way that the Auction House merge affected me was, if I wanted to, I could have sat and made oodles of gold over legendaries because all of a sudden my profit margins decreased just because or my profit margins increased just because the raw materials tanked in price and i never had to do this thing where i was looking at oxane and i was like boy 30 gold in oxane is a huge markup but i'm just gonna buy 400 of it because you know what whatever i'll just eat into a little bit of my profit margins for this and not and not worry too much about it well now there's no way oxane is ever going above 10 gold right because you know, the the stability of just so many people flooding the auction house with it um, is, is nuts. Anyway, yeah, interesting. That is an interesting thing. I think the real test of time is going to be Dragonflight, though. Yeah. Just because, um, you know, we are in a saturated position where Shadowlands has been out for years. And so people have a lot of extra kind of capital to sit on. Um, and I'm interested to see what will happen when uh, Dragonflight comes out and we have all of these new materials that are um you know we have all of these new materials in the, in the game that are now being put up for for you know new prices right
0: yeah yeah well um that will that, that certainly will be interesting yeah i feel like we could probably do an episode on that at some point but um we are over time are, are you going to rate tonight uh i'm not going to raid right. tonight
1: right. uh which is mostly uh i have more work to do <laughs> yeah, fair
0: enough. well i'll let you get back to work and i will go to raid and so uh okay. i'm going to say to with that uh, oh do you have anything you want to promote before we get out of here
1: i do have one thing i'm looking to promote which is absolute tactics drops uh on thursday uh on thursday september 15th at 9 a.m pacific time um uh, so yeah if you want to i don't know b- buy a super classical absolute tactics you know talking about hook and anchor absolute tactics is all anchor if you like tactics rpgs boy oh boy is this the tactics rpg right uh it is just like the classic experience which is kind of what i loved about it um so yeah
0: that's that's thursday at 9 a.m yep excellent oh so if you would like to tell us what you thought about any of the bullshit we talked about on this podcast you can email us at gmail.com or pockets.com follow us at twitch.tv for these go out live Uh, all the other stuff, there's, uh, a bunch of other stuff around, right? Like there's, uh, what do we call it? There's like a Patreon and a YouTube and all that stuff. Um, but yeah, um, with that, I'm going to say, uh, until next time to your listeners.
1: Until next time, loyal listeners.